Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Professor of Economics, Gary Smith, who specializes in financial markets and debunking myths in statistical analysis. Welcome, Gary. Thank nice you, to have you with thank us. You Get well here in cyberspace. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wish we could be with you in person, but not yet. Me too. <laughs> um, so how how are you how have you adjusted to this very strange crazy time it's very odd i uh i actually kind of like it and i hear other people kind of <laughs> like it too yeah uh, like uh rents are apparently dropping san francisco and new york city and a lot of companies mm -hmm. are thinking uh, we really don't need people to live right next door and show up for work every day and uh, a lot of stuff can be done from home and I don't know if that's going to be the future, not, not for 100%, but maybe for a substantial part of the population. I think teaching is probably one of the few things where uh, Zooming doesn't work well, but a lot of yeah. other things. I, I've got a son who's working for Amazon, and uh, he's been working. He started work, uh, I guess, in June, and he's been remote from California and New York and now California. <laughs> and they're talking yeah. he's going to be remote at least through the summer. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, mm -hmm. I think it may be the future for a lot of people, which is well, good for the environment, good for, good for people's uh, amount of time you have and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah people can live wherever they want to. Yeah. That's, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Gary, tell us a little bit about your early years. I grew mm -hmm. up in uh, Buena Park, a sleepy little town uh, south of Pomona. And it was a uh, 900 square foot house, 100 yards from the railroad track, and there were six of us, and we grew up there thinking that, that was the way everyone lived. <laughs> and then uh, I went to college, and at the time it was interesting. It was uh, the rich kids went to Stanford, and the smart kids went to Berkeley. And uh, <laughs> it's a true story. And mm -hmm. Berkeley yeah. was actually late in the admissions process, so if you didn't get into Stanford or Caltech or places like that, you would you'd go to Berkeley kind of as a backup for smart people. <laughs> and, uh, and a recruiter came by from Harvey Mudd College. And uh, my passions at the time were not so much uh, school, but I liked uh, debate and I liked water polo. And uh, he sold me on five colleges and uh, you take classes in different places and it's co-educational, unlike uh, I mean, Harvard was not much co-educational, but the five colleges were certainly co-educational, <laughs> unlike Caltech. And uh, I liked the water polo and I liked uh, the debate. And so I said, yes, and there I was. And I was interested in math from really early age. My dad was a aerospace engineer. And so that was kind of my passion was math. But uh, the first year at Harvey Mudd, the national debate topic was Resolved the federal government should establish a national program of public works for the unemployed. And that, of course, is straight ahead economics. And uh, I discovered economics. It's, it's, it's really cool because it's, it's really good for people who are mathematically inclined. And it also relates to the real world, making, making it a better world. And so uh, when I graduated, or as I neared graduation from Harvey Mudd, I applied to econ grad school. And my dad said, what are you gonna do with that? That's not building airplanes or anything. I mean, what, do you, what do you do with an econ degree? 
And I said I was going to become a professor. And he said, oh, okay. And so I applied and I got into Yale. And uh, even though I'd hardly taken any econ classes, I think I'd taken one at Pomona and two at CMC. But I did really well in the GREs. And I had my debate in water polo, which, which signaled that I had some energy. And so they took a chance on me. <laughs> and I got there. It was interesting. The, uh, the intro macro class was taught by James Tobin who was one of the greatest economists in the world. And, uh, later became a Nobel laureate. And uh, in that class, he used the Socratic method. He asked questions and he wanted kids to answer up. And most kids were terrified of him, you know, intimidated. They say something stupid. And I didn't know who he was. I didn't know economics or economists. And so I was not intimidated. And I spoke up. To me, he was just a friendly, goofy guy. And I spoke up. And I was probably gave wrong answers more often than right, but but he liked the fact that I spoke up, and so he kind of took me under his wing, and became my mentor and my role model. And uh, then I got a job at Yale, and uh, I taught macroeconomics, same class he had taught. I took over that class, and he taught microeconomics, which is a great story in comparative advantage because he was a lot better than me in macro but he was a lot, lot, lot better than me in micro. <laughs> and so one of, the, one of the world's greatest macroeconomists was teaching microeconomics while I was teaching the macro class. And then, then they, had a, they took a survey of, of the Yale students and they had 70 faculty members and hundreds of courses. And they asked them, what courses would you like added to the curriculum? And there were two big winners, Marx and the stock market. And I wasn't much interested in Marx but uh, Tobin asked me if I wanted to teach a stock market class. And I'd never taken a course in the stock market. I'd never bought a share of stock in my life. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I want to teach it. <laughs> but I was young and naive and energetic, and I said, sure. And so I, I started teaching this investment class. And I asked him uh, for a textbook, and he said, John Burr Williams, The Theory of Investment Value, which was not a textbook. It was John Burr Williams, PhD thesis at Harvard. But it said before John Burr Williams, people bought and sold stocks based on guesses about whether prices are going up or down. And John Burr Williams set the foundation for value investing, which goes through Dodd and Graham and Warren Buffett and all, all the great value investors. And so that was my inspiration. And so I taught that class and, uh, you know, I've been trained as a macroeconomist. I taught graduate macro at Yale. But finance is really, really, really interesting because it's got a lot of math, it's got a lot of theorems that make sense, it's got a lot of data you can analyze, and you can make some money. And so it was, it was really an interesting thing. And so I, I left macroeconomics and I went into finance and statistics. And then along the way, I learned that uh, in finance and the stock market, there are all these people trying to predict stock prices, unlike what John Burr Williams recommended. And so they're ransacking the data and there are lots and lots and lots of data in finance. And so they come up with all these crazy theories about how you can beat the market. And so you should buy in October. No, you should sell in October. You should buy in May. No, you should buy in presidential election years. No, you should sell. You should buy in dragon years. You should buy in years that end with eight or five. I mean, all this nonsense. And people took it seriously because it, yeah. the data showed that. Of course, the past data shows a lot of different correlations, almost all of which are, are purely coincidental. And so I, I got fascinated with the idea of, at the time it was called data mining, and it was a sin 
to go through the data and find a pattern and assume that it must be meaningful. And I've had that with me forever you know, from teaching finance. And then along came the computer revolution and AI. And all of a sudden data mining is a virtue, not a sin. And the <laughs> idea that you can, you can search through data, ransack data and find patterns and think they're meaningful is just a huge mistake. And so the last three books I've written, the last, uh, you know, all, all Oxford University Press have all been focused on that idea, the dangers of data mining and the idea that it's so easy to think the computers are smarter than us because they can beat us at chess and go and backgammon and things like that. They must know more than we do. And if you find a pattern in the data, it must be meaningful. And I, I think that's a huge mistake. And so that's my recent uh, campaign has been pushing back against that, that nonsense. The, so that's my backstory. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, um, um, on the stock market, uh, yeah. on the other, other side of that, you also, some of your students, with some of your students, you also found out some things that do seem to make a difference. And yeah. surprisingly, one of them is just clever tickers. Yeah, exactly. Can you tell us about so that were, and how that came about? Yeah, it uh, started out with some students thinking about uh, ticker symbols and whether they, whether they had any relationship to stock price performance. And I assumed it was a bunch of nonsense. And so we went and we wrote this paper. It was a senior thesis in my, my senior seminar. And it was a couple of really smart students. And we, we went back and we got all these, all the, we, the, the wrong way to do it is to look at socks that are done really well and then go back and see what they have in common. <laughs> right. So that's, that's, yeah. that's total data mining. Okay. And that's like, that's like good to great. Jim Collins book, good to great. It's got that total flaw. You look at socks that have done well, companies done well, and you go back and look at what they have in common. And that, that's a huge mistake. And the companies he identified as good to great have on average been mediocre since the publication of his book. Because you know. So what he should have done was look back at, here are the characteristics that matter, pick the companies that have them, those that don't, and see how they do going forward. And so that's what we did with the Clever Ticker thing. We went back at some point in time, looked at all the stocks on the, uh, traded on the New York Stock Exchange, made an exhaustive list of all the ticker symbols, and then we did a survey of people, which ticker symbols do you think are, and we tried to avoid stock market professionals who would actually know what they meant. But we asked them, which ticker symbols do you think are clever and cute and memorable and, and stuff like that? And we got our list, and then to my surprise, and maybe our students' surprise too, they actually turned out to beat the market by a substantial amount. And then uh, we revisited that, uh, I think it was two years ago, another two really smart Pomona women, senior seminar, did another senior thesis, and it was to see whether this is held up out of sample. And so a lot of those data mining things, they work like the Collins thing. It works well in sample, and then you go to fresh data, it falls apart because it was just a coincidence. And so what we did is we looked at another 20 years, I believe, maybe it was 10 years, I can't remember exactly how much, but we looked at another several years of data after we'd written the first paper to see whether these clever ticker stocks still continued to beat the market. And the answer was they did. And it's still kind of a mystery to me why it's true. We, I got some ideas, but. Uh, well, what are your ideas? I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, economics is all, or at least used to be sort of based on this whole idea that everything is rational and, oh, yeah, you for, know, and, yeah, yeah. and um, but more and more, just the vagaries of human psychology have exactly. begun to enter into it. And that sounds like one of those cases. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
just an aside here, that whole, the whole idea that the investors are irrational and they go off and do silly things and they, and <laughs> like day traders and stuff like that. That's actually great for value investors because it creates opportunities. And so when the crowd goes off in some euphoria, some dot-com bubble or something like that, it creates opportunities for value investors to, to come in and buy. And so I think investor nonsense is actually good. <laughs> it's actually an can opportunity. You explain what, can you explain what value investing is? And so the, the idea is that instead of trying to predict what a stock price is going to be an hour from now, a day from now, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, instead you focus on stock as being a money machine. And you say, here's this amazing thing, and it generates cash. Somehow it makes profits, and it pays dividends. And what would you pay to own those profits and to get those dividends? And that's value investing. And so you say, here's a company that pays 1% dividend or 2% dividend, and you expect the dividend's going to grow with the economy at 5% a year. And what would you pay to own that thing? And not just own it for a day or a week or a month, but to own it forever. And so like Warren Buffett, as famously said, my favorite holding period is forever. And no one holds stock forever. But the idea is, if you think that way, you stop trying to predict stock prices. And you think, if I'm buying it, I'm all in. And I'm going to stick with it forever. And I'm going to be happy with the profits and the dividends. And that's value investing, buying for the profits and the dividends. Okay, so back to uh, Clever Tickers. One of my ideas was, actually, in the last, the last go-round on the paper, one of the uh, students was a double major in econ and psychology. And so she had all this stuff about the brain processes things that they can, are memorable, processes things that make you smile and you feel good about stuff like that. And I think that I think there's something to that. And so there was there was a company that uh, it was a chain of veterinarian stores, or veterinarian shops. I don't know what you call them, but veterinarians, okay. <laughs> and uh, they went private, and it was called VCA Antech. And they were taken private by, by a local LA company, Leonard Green. And then uh, they fixed up the company and they went public again. And they're trying to think of a ticker symbol. And uh, coincidentally, <laughs> one of the people at Leonard Green was a former Pomona student, Michael Solomon. And uh, he said, why don't we go with a symbol instead of VCA or VCAT or something boring like that? Why don't we use a symbol WOOF, W-O-O-F. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> And so they went with the symbol Wolf, and uh, this company's actually done, it, when it first came out, people were making fun of it, you know, what a stupid idea, but actually it's done really, really well over time. But what, and so for me, what does that ticker symbol mean besides, what, what is, why is that of any advantage? And one thing is it's memorable. And so when you're thinking about buying something in the, the pet industry, and you're trying to rent, your brain is thinking about things and processing things, Wolf is going to come to mind. VCAT, you'd never remember that, but woof, you remember. If you see it on a list, I guess you if you see it, see it on a list, it's going to jump out at you, right? It's going to jump out at you, and you're going to remember it. And you might also think, oh, the people who work there are kind of smart and clever. And uh, it's, it's a, you know, I don't know which of those explanations <laughs> works better, but you know, those, those are two of my ideas. I was actually starting a, starting a study with another two other promoter women before the whole pandemic hit, and we were going through all ticker symbols, and we had set up this test we were gonna run in, in the new econ computer lab. And we we're kind of distinguished between ticker symbols that are memorable and ticker symbols that are cute. And so mm -hmm. we had this test about, and so is, is woof work because it's cute or does woof work because it's memorable? 
And there's some ticker symbols. Can it symbols. be both? Some, yeah, it could be both. <laughs> but then there are other ones who are one, one or the other. And so the, the test is going to come from the ones that are cute but not memorable or from the ones that are memorable but not cute. And so we had this whole thing set up. We had the lab all set up. We had the software on there. And we were ready to invite kids in to do the test. And then, of course, Pomona College shut down. And <laughs> it's still sitting there on the lab, <laughs> in the lab. And the students have graduated. <laughs> and so I don't know if that will ever be resurrected. So that's, that's um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No. I, I should tell one of one of one of the things that that we wanted to ask you is how the pandemic has affected your research, and and you were starting to talk about it a little with with that. Can you give us an example of, of how do you go about your research, and then how, and delve into kind of how do the the pandemic has you know put some things on hold, or how you have to yeah. Kind of well, the laboratory thing is kind of kind of unusual in that I don't really usually have a laboratory, but this is the case. And I thought of another really cool experiment. I also set this up with Supermona women. And we had another experiment all ready to run. And it had to do with the self-confidence of uh, women at Pomona compared to the self-confidence of uh, men and uh, students. And we were going to compare their self-confidence when they came in and their self-confidence when they left. Mm -hmm. And we had this really cool experiment which measured how self-confident you were. And I guess I can talk about it because it'll probably never happen. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't. Oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I should talk about it. Casey don't jinx does. it, or we can yeah. go into luck after this. It, not jinx it, but if people know, yeah. if people know what the purpose of the experiment is, then yeah. they'll, they'll gain then, the experiment. Yeah, yeah for sure. Right. And so for those two things, those two things have pretty much died. I don't know if they're ever going to come back again or not, but it's the, the kids who are going to do it, they've, they've gone off and, and done other things and stuff. And but for most non, of my research, yeah, for non-lab, how do you go about your research? Yeah, so outside the econ lab, which is almost everything I do is outside the lab, everything is pretty much online. All that you can download, all the data you need, you can all the articles, all the you know the bibliography. You can read all the articles have been written, and it doesn't. You know, when I did it for one college, I I didn't go in the library, I didn't go out in the field and collect data, and I have colleagues like like Tahir Andrabi who collect data in the field, but all my research is with uh, published data. And so it has, has had no effect on my research at all. I'd say the one, the one bit of uh, the one effect, which has not affected me yet, is trying to make Zoom classes uh, interesting and worth the cost is using up a lot of professor time. And I've been on sabbatical this past fall, so that was not yet a thing for me. But I think a lot of professors sort of burnt up their summer trying to get a fall classes that would be the students would want to take and would think, oh, I'm glad I took that class. And so that, that has definitely been a cost of the pandemic. And then <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen when we get back to normal. I read today that uh, Fauci's saying uh, second, third or fourth quarter of uh, 2021, we may be back to normal. And so fall, we may be back to normal at Pomona. Mm -hmm. And so all that effort that went into making Zoom classes interesting a lot of it's going to be, you know, a sunk cost, but I think there might be some lessons that people learn, the professors learn from that about how to make classes more engaging, interactive and stuff like that. But a lot of it is going to be, uh, well, I had to do that for a year. We've been talking about, and you've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, dubious uses of, of yeah. data and, um, I wanted you to drill down into that a little bit more. I, I maybe in an industry like sports, because I know you've you've gotten into that a little bit, and it, there's there are very few places where statistics are 
so front and center as in something yeah. like baseball where every and the stock market. Yeah. yeah. Um, so can you talk to us? I mean, is, is, is the, the use of data in sports um, also a little bit suspect in places? Well, I think, you know, the stock market and, and baseball are great because of all the data they have. And so I've, not just baseball, I guess other sports too. And so you've noticed I've written a lot of papers using sports data and stock market data. Mm -hmm. And the thing about sports data is a lot of it is uh, done the right way. And so the wrong way to do it is to let loose some computer algorithm that just looks for patterns and correlations and think they must be meaningful. And that that's really, has happened a lot in the stock market. In baseball, I have, I have a kid who plays baseball or did play baseball, he's retired now at UCSD and he's interested in sabermetrics and, and actually applying for some jobs in that field. And the thing about the baseball stuff is it's usually done the right way. And you have the computer nerds who are running the programs analyzing the data, but it's motivated by the people who know baseball. And so when they're thinking about what data to analyze to predict whether, what pitch is gonna work with a particular batter, they're not just throwing in all sorts of random stuff and saying, well, if it's Tuesday, you should throw a curveball, And if it's Wednesday, you should throw a fastball. I mean, they're, look, they're looking at things that actually matter because they know, they know baseball. And so when they look at where to look for patterns or where to look for correlations, they're looking in the right places because they have the theory before they look at the data and they want to see if the data confirm the theory as opposed to looking at the data and then making up a theory after the fact, oh, Tuesday's an unlucky day, right. some, something like that. And so in sports, sabermetrics, the, the use of data to uh, inform how you, how, you, how you play has actually been very, very productive because again, it's motiv mm -hmm. motivated by theory first and data later as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, I would bet that uh, most Americans who know the, the the meaning of the term regression to the mean are baseball fans. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that is really right. Yeah. So you should tell them the some LA fans about regression to the mean with this year they've had. <laughs> I had an interview on the uh, local NPR station, All Things Considered, and the Dodgers had just won the regular season with a great record and we're headed into the uh, World Series. And so I talked to this guy, Larry. Mantle. Larry Mantle, I talked to him. He's a lifelong Dodger mm -hmm. fan. So he wanted to know about regression to the mean. And I told him about regression to the mean that the fact that the Dodgers had uh, done so well in the regular season didn't guarantee they were gonna win the World Series, especially in something as, as short as a seven game series at most, seven games at most, there's no guarantee they're gonna win. And if anything, they're likely to regress to the mean. And of course, it was one of those years where the Dodgers did not win the World Series. So. But it, I've also written papers with Pomona students about betting, but it's been football instead of baseball. And so you have teams that are trying to beat the spread. I mean, bettors want them to beat the spread or not beat the spread in choosing which team to bet on. And they're heavily influenced by recent performance team has done really, really well this week or really, really badly. Like the Tampa Bay Bucks did really badly yesterday. And sports fans are likely to overreact and to think that Tampa Bay must be a really awful team because they did so badly this, this past week. And so when it comes to next week, the betting odds are gonna be against Tampa Bay. And so if you believe in regression to the mean, that Tampa Bay's bad performance had more than unusual bad luck, 
they're not really as bad as they seem, you would want to bet on Tampa Bay next week. Now, you of course have to consider who the opponent is and how well they done recently compared <laughs> to their betting odds. But the idea was that uh, based on regression to the mean and based on uh, people relying on recent data and under what is called the base rate fallacy, Conrad Tversky, thinking about recent data as opposed to longer lasting data, people tend to swing too far one way or another, just like in the stock market. And so you should bet against that. And uh, so we put together a betting strategy of uh, betting on teams that have done poorly or have done worse than their opponents against the spread. And that actually was a profitable strategy. And then I revisited that uh, a couple of years ago, again, out of sample test, and it still continues to work. And so the Dodgers were just an example of that. <laughs> but of course, regression to the mean is a tendency, not a guarantee. And so last yeah. year they had the best record in baseball and they did win the World Series, although there were a few hiccups along the way. But they did it somehow. They did it. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Many people were happy. Many LA people were happy. That's right. Yes. Um, Gary, let's go back. You mentioned that your last three books, um, you've been yeah. um, focusing more on, on data science and, and how yeah. um, that's been analyzed. So what are some of the pitfalls of data science? Well, the biggest one I think is, in my mind, is, is the whole data mining thing. And there, there are two human things that underlie that. One is, is this uh, belief that uh, if you see a pattern, it must be meaningful. And so I think we're kind of hardwired to, to look for patterns and to interpret any pattern we see as, as meaningful. And so back with our Stone Age ancestors, they saw patterns around them. They saw birds screaming in the air, or they saw heard zebras stampeding. And they thought, well, they learned quickly that that was a sign of danger. Something, something bad was going on. That it could have been a fire, it could have been lions, or, you know, but something bad was going on. Or if you follow elephants, to, uh, you're going to end up with water because elephants remember where water is. And, and so those kinds of patterns were, were very, very useful. And people who uh, were able to observe patterns and act on the basis of patterns that had great survival and reproductive value. And so over time, I think we got genetically hardwired, <coughs> excuse me, genetically hardwired to uh, look for patterns and think they must be meaningful. And then, of course, in today's environment, a lot of the data we see are not as simple as zebras and birds and elephants. It's a lot of measures of really abstract uh, concepts like GNP or stock price indices or things like that, which are not so or, simply Or dots on a map. Or stocks on, yeah, cancer clusters on a map. I, I yeah. got a, I got a, did that one come out today? Yeah. I got an op-ed that came out today actually about uh, cancer clusters. And so mm -hmm. the, the US government publishes these maps that show incidents of different kinds of cancers throughout throughout the country, and it's got like 22 different kinds of cancers, and it's got it's got it by race and 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 gender, and there's just so many possible correlations you could find, and people who are curious or fearful or too much time on their hands, they ransack these maps and they find oh look in this tiny little and they do it down by 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 census block. Look in this particular census block the cancer rate for this particular cancer, for this particular gender, for this particular race is above average. Something's going on here. And then they report it to the National Cancer Centers and they go out and investigate it and find that there's nothing there. It's just a coincidence. And, and we're, we're just hardwired to think that things like that must, if something is above average, that must mean something. 
you flip a coin 10 times and heads will be above average or below average, just, just the nature of chance. And so things that turn out to be, uh, have certain patterns, above average, below average, four in a row, five in a row, whatever, more often than not, it's coincidental. And in the world we live in today, the world with big data, there's just so much data that the amount of possible correlations, possible patterns you could find is just astronomical and getting larger every day. And then if you think there's a certain relatively finite number of true relationships and a lot of coincidental relationships, well, the ratio of coincidental to true is growing exponentially, which means the chances that a pattern you find is coincidental is rapidly approaching one. And the chances that a pattern you find by accident is real is rapidly approaching zero. Uh, tell us about your most recent book, um, The Phantom Pantron, uh, Pattern Problem. Yeah, um, so that, that's what I know was, it falls into that same, yeah. same line, but how, what is it specifically? It was specifically on the idea of, of why is it we are so easily seduced by uh, data mining. And it's the kind of things I, I've been talking about here. It's a, we're kind of hard, hardwired to think that patterns we observe must be real, but they're often phantom patterns. And then the book is just a collection of a whole lot of examples of, of stuff like that or in different fields where people have been fooled into thinking things that are, thinking things are meaningful when in fact meaningless coincidences. And one of those, one of the sections is actually on Pomona's 47, the infamous 47. <laughs> <laughs> which Tell hope, us more. Which I hope every Pomona student realizes is, is just a coincidental yeah. joke, mm -hmm. but not, not serious. Mm -hmm. And so it goes back to Don Bentley, a legendary uh, professor of statistics at, at Pomona. And actually, when I was at Harvey Mudd, one of the Pomona classes I took was his probability theory class, and it was it was heavy duty theory. And uh, but he was also a bit of a prankster. And at one point he made up this whimsical proof that uh, all numbers are equal to 47. And, <laughs> and then these students started looking around for 47 around the Pomona campus. And of course they found them and they found lots and lots and lots of numbers. And the ones that weren't 47, they ignored. And the ones that <laughs> were 47, they reported. <laughs> and so for example, one of them is, uh, mm. if you want to go to Pomona College on the, on the I-10, it's exit 47. Well, that's true if you're traveling east. If you're traveling <laughs> west, it's exit 48. And if you take the 210, it's either exit 50 or 52, depending whether you go east or west. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of possibilities there. And of course, nobody cares about 48 or 50 or 52, but ah, oh, we got another 47 sighting. And so yes. there's actually a website where you can report 47 sightings and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and a lot of them get reported. And then the other fun thing that's happened uh, since then is Pomona students have gone off into the world and some have gone into radio and television and Hollywood and they put little 47s into their scripts. And so 47s show up on Star Trek and uh, various movies. And, uh, and so you see a 47 and it's not a coincidence now. It's been planted by a Pomona student. <laughs> We've We're manipulating the, game. the data. Yeah. We're manipulating Those, the data. Exactly, exactly, manipulating the data. <laughs> Gary, you um, for two of your recent books, you've teamed up with uh, Pomona alumnus, Jake Cords, yep. class of '93. Yeah. Um, can you tell us how that partnership came about? It was it was one of those coincidental things. I mean, I, I think back through my life, all the weird little things I went it happened. You know, 
having to be a debater and having to have that debate topic, which led me into economics and having to have James Tobin as a mentor who impressed by the fact that I had a big mouth. And then the students wanted to do finance. And so I taught a finance class because Jim invited me. And then I became into fi all these coincidences. And Jay was, was kind of the same way. He worked at a company in, in LA and they had a couple of statistical puzzles they couldn't figure out. And one of the things the company did was you have some web page design and you're trying to decide which, which was more effective in selling products. And so should we use a blue font or a black font? Should we have a yellow background or a green background? Should we show a picture or should we use text? If we show a picture, which picture should we show? And the company Jay worked for had the scientific experiment set up, which are called A-B test. And so what happened is you would click on the URL and a random number generator would decide whether you go to the page with the yellow background or the green background or the white background. And then it would tabulate how many sales were made or whatever metric you were interested in and report back that the yellow background worked best. It did 5% better than the background you're currently using. And so they'd recommend that to the client and uh, the client would do it. And sure enough, traffic would increase, but it only increased by 2% instead of 5%. And that happened over and over and over again. And so that was one of the statistical puzzles they had. And you want to guess the explanation? Regression, Regression to, the to the mean. Regression <laughs> to the mean. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and so Jay had had... Uh, a professor at Occidental College, Woody Studeman, come out and give him a basic course in statistics to him. And uh, Jay was looking for somebody to come talk about this particular puzzle and other puzzles they had. And, and uh, Woody recommended me another coincidental thing that Woody happened to know me from, he had used my stats book and I'd written a chapter for his econometrics book. And so he knew me. And so Jay invited me out there and I gave this talk and I talked about a lot of things. And, especially regression to the mean. And Jay came away convinced that regression to the mean was the key to the universe. <laughs> he's, actually used, he's actually used those words. <laughs> and, and, then, and he didn't drive to LA. He, uh, he took the train from the metro station in Claremont. And so going back and forth, he picked my brain and he told me stories about uh, things, silly things that had happened at, uh, at work where people data mined or they did very statistical mistakes made, made a lot of mistakes and, did, and they paid for it in terms of things not working out as well as planned and so i had already written the ai delusion which i talked about the uh, mistaken belief that computers are smarter than us and that's that's the second thing i never got back to that before i said that the idea that patterns are all around us and they're meaningful that's one thing that causes problems the other one is thinking that computers are smarter than us and so when a computer finds a pattern well, it must be right because computers know more than we do. And so I wrote, I wrote that book. And then Jay and I talking about all the statistical mistakes and foibles that he'd encountered in his everyday life. We said, well, why don't we write a book about it? And so and we called it the nine pitfalls of data science. And it was a little weird there. We started off with the 10, the 10 rules and it was like the, <laughs> it was like a biblical thing. <laughs> the Oxford commandments University. of data science. Yeah, the yes. ten, that's actually what it's called, the Ten Commandments of Data Science. And uh, Oxford University Press thought that we shouldn't get go so biblical on that. And then we started thinking, ten is like, it's, it's kind of like a special number, you know, like the Ten Commandments. We should do something a little more memorable, like nine. People might remember nine more than ten. And so mm -hmm. we, took, we took all our, all our 
our lessons and we pushed some into certain categories and broke up other categories and we came up with nine of them and, uh, and so I provided the uh, the theoretical ideas about why various things work or don't work like regression to the mean and then Jay provided the anecdotes and, uh, and he had a lot of anecdotes <laughs> and so that book was chock full of that and uh, sh shortly before that book came out we started thinking about a sequel and that was the phantom patterns and it was like it was more anecdotes it was more stuff and it focused on on the nine commandments one of them was uh, data mining and phantom patterns just zeroed in on data mining because i think that's become the, the biggest mistake in, in the whole ai industry right now is the belief that if a computer finds a pattern you need to go with it and it, it's just led to so many silly decisions and so like in the book there's there's a insurance yeah, company about... and they decided they decided they could improve they could set car insurance rates based on uh, the words you use on your facebook pages and <laughs> <laughs> and there was a there was a company that decided you could uh, choose software engineers based on the web pages they visited oh, wow. and, there, and there was a there was a um, I guess it was an insurance company no, it was an insurance company Oh, it was a loan. It was a loan application. They were applying for loan applications, and they said it's so old-fashioned to actually look at a person's income and wealth and how often they pay their debts. And what we're going to use is modern technology. We're going to look at their smartphone usage, and look at whether. And so they found out through their through their data mining, that people who kept their smartphones charged tend to be better data risk. Oh, good lord! <laughs> oh, good lord is right. <laughs> and then Amazon had this one. They were they were they were trying to. To sort through applications for a whole bunch of different jobs. And one of them was software engineers. And what they let loose was an AI algorithm that looked at the resumes of people that were currently working at Amazon as software engineers. And then they had the AI algorithm look at the resumes of people who applied for jobs. And that was the pre-screening mechanism was what things were most cor closely correlated with, with the engineers they had. And one of the things that turned out was going to an all women's college got you thrown out of the pile because there were not a lot of Amazon software engineers who'd gone to all women's colleges. Oh, yeah, yeah. And if you're on a women's debate team, if you're on a women's sing, singing acapella group, if you're you know, on a women's <laughs> sports team, they all got you all thrown out because so few Amazon engineers have done that. Yeah. And then there were these, one of the biggest things now is algorithmic criminology, trying to decide whether somebody should be given bail and if they're convicted, trying to decide how many years they should be sentenced to. And if they apply for, for a early release parole, trying to decide whether that should be approved. And it's all gone on, on strict data mining. And one of the enthusiasts says, it finds things you wouldn't expect. For example, the width of the wristband you wear or the size of your shoes. And so yeah, this algorithmic criminology you use is being used now throughout the United States to decide whether you should be granted bail or how much bail, if you're convicted, how long you should be sentenced to, and if you apply for parole, whether it should be granted. And one of the enthusiasts, who's actually a professor, said that it finds all sorts of things you wouldn't expect, like the width of your wristband. But since the computer has found it, you should go with it. And it's just, it's just, <laughs> it's this phantom patterns yep. and this belief that a computer's find it, it must be. And then there are these who said you could predict whether somebody's a criminal by having an AI algorithm scan your face and look at facial features. And it, it's just absolute nonsense. It's also wildly discriminatory. 
most of these things I mentioned, like, <laughs> are discriminatory. And uh, yeah, like one of them, in addition to whether you keep your phone charged, whether you answer your phone. Well, people in certain religions don't answer their phones at certain times of the day or certain days of the week or days of the month or months of the year. And so it, it discriminates against them, right? And the mm -hmm. words you use on Facebook, or another one was on the Facebook one was uh, whether you like Michael Jordan or Leonard Cohen. And that may be related to gender and race and all sorts of things. It's also total nonsense. Yeah. And in that case, just like the algorithmic criminology, they say the things it finds are changing all the time. And they think that's a virtue. But why are they changing all the time? Because they didn't work. <laughs> they found something, they found a correlation, and then they used it and it didn't work. So they got to find another correlation to replace it with. And somehow they think that that's, that's good. And so... And so the phantom patterns is pushing to back back against all this idea that uh, we should let computers find patterns and make decisions for us because computers are not smarter than us and they shouldn't make decisions based on things they don't understand based on correlations that are most often just temporary and coincidental uh, gary um I, you said earlier that um the the things that really brought you into um, economics yeah. or, you know, your love of math and the fact that you wanted to do something in the real world You're right. um, that had meaning. Um, yet a lot of students still see economics as this very dry sort, yeah. of, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but from the stories you're telling, it's not. Uh, oh, not at all. What, what, do, you what do you say to, to students who, to, to explain why, why economics can be fun and interesting and, you know, I, I, interesting I for a whole of, lifetime. Right. I think part of, part of the problem is that economics as, at its core is, is a pretty mathematical subject. It's actually classified as a STEM subject at, at Pomona and others, other places. And so a lot of the core courses of necessity have a lot of math in them, which for many people <laughs> is not very exciting or interesting. Okay. And you sort of, we tell them, well, we'll wait, just wait. And after you get past the, uh, the core fields, you get to the subject fields and you get to the interesting stuff. And, uh, and so I think maybe, I don't know, if we did, I was gonna say we need to do a better job selling econ as interesting, but as you know, econ has been for decades the most popular major at, at Pomona. And so people are seeing something in it. Yeah. But, but there are things like my colleague Tahir Andrabi, the experiments he's doing and the field experiments he's doing in Pakistan, relating to education in rural districts and especially women's education. And they're out there doing these field experiments which are having, which are changing the world, literally, literally. And then in macroeconomics, you've got these great recessions we've been through. And if we didn't know economics, we'd make the same mistakes we made in the Great Depression and the world would have been just destroyed. And so we really have changed the world for mm -hmm. the better. And maybe we need to do a better job telling our students that uh, economics is not just math, it's, uh, it's also saving the world. Saving us from AI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, saving us from AI. Well, see, economists are actually pretty good about this because economics is based on the idea that you actually have theories and theory comes before data. And so we have our micro theories or our macro theories mm -hmm. and then we go out and test them with data. And it's unusual in economics for somebody to just ransack data and find a correlation and make up a theory after the fact. It does happen, but it's not the norm. But there are other fields like in finance where it seems to be the norm to, uh, to ransack the data, find a pattern and think it's meaningful. 
and some examples I have is there's these are academic papers actually written published in, in respected journals that you can uh, predict stock prices by looking at the number of Google searches for the word debt. And what they did was they looked at Google searches, D-E-B-T, they looked at Google searches for a whole bunch of words and they found the word debt was correlated with uh, stock prices. So they wrote a paper about it. And then of course, out of sample <laughs> with fresh data, it, was, it just fell apart. It was total yeah. nonsense. Yikes. Or another yeah. one was uh, stock prices predicted. You look at Twitter feeds and you looked at words that were considered calm. And of course, there's a little ambiguity there about what calm words are, but it's also <laughs> they looked at like 10 different categories. And so you're going to find something's above average or something below average. Another one was, oh, this is not, oh, Bitcoin prices. This is by a Yale professor, ironically. <laughs> a Yale professor who teaches macroeconomics, the courses that uh, Tobin and I taught. And uh, he wrote this paper about predicting Bitcoin prices. And he looked at 806 possible correlations. And he considered something statistically significant if there's less than a 10% chance it would happen by luck alone. And he ended up with 73 correlations, which is somewhat fewer than you would expect if you just use random, random numbers. But one of his was that you look at stock returns in the paperboard containers and boxes industry, and that was correlated with Bitcoin prices. Uh, you, <laughs> you wrote an NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER paper about that, even though it makes no sense whatsoever. Yikes. <laughs> Another one is interest rates can be predicted from uh, when uh, Trump tweets the words uh, billion and great. And <laughs> he tweets great a, a lot, so yeah, that's, a lot of data. A lot. that's a lot of data to go through. Yeah, that would be a... Now to show how silly that was, I, I did another paper with a Pomona student, John Zook, and we looked through all of Trump's tweets and we looked for words that might be correlated with other things, which he thought people might recognize as being silly. And so in addition to stock prices, we looked at uh, the number of runs scored by the Washington Nationals baseball team. <laughs> <laughs> we, looked at, we looked at the high temperature in Moscow, daily high temperature in Moscow, oh, wow. and the daily high temperature in the capital of North Korea. And uh, just to make the point, we also looked at correlations with random numbers. And uh, of course, we found correlations in all those cases. Wow. Because you, you ransack data and uh, you're going to find something. But all those examples I just mentioned, people ransacked data, they found something, they thought it was meaningful, and they actually published papers, and in some cases maybe took action based upon it. You know, bought or sold stocks based on such nonsense. <laughs> uh, Gary, um, you're on, you say you're on sabbatical right now. Um, yeah. you're, you're back teaching in the spring? Yep. <laughs> what, what are some of the classes that you'll be teaching? Well, I'm teaching uh, stats and I was, just reading a, I was just reading an article in the Harvard Alumni Monthly where my, my wife has a PhD from Harvard and uh, the struggles they've had with Zoom classes. And one of the things they said is today's students can't keep an attention span for 75 minutes on Zoom. And who, so can? Been, <laughs> who can? Who yeah, can? Yeah. Really. And so they've been breaking up the classes. They've been uh, having classes only be 45 minutes long, but they're, they're struggling with that. And one of the classes I teach on, uh, we teach in the spring is statistics. And I've made that uh, increasingly over the years, uh, learning stats by doing stats. And so I break the team, the class into randomly selected three person teams. And they go out and they collect data outside class and they do some kind of statistical analysis of, of ideas, theories that I, I present to them. 
And then they come back and they report the results in class. And so I think I'm gonna double the number of those. Although the Harvard thing said that one way professors have reacted to the pandemic is by doubling the workload. <laughs> so, I, I, so I gotta be a little careful there. Yeah, but yeah. I think I will cut back on other things mm -hmm. which might bore students listening to me talk over Zoom or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think might replace that with students. Oh, the other thing it said is one of the great joys of the college experience is students actually interacting with each other. Yep. You know, talking to each other in, in the dining hall or in, in the dorms or in the, at parties or in the laboratories or in the classroom or wherever. And that's all gone when everyone's zooming in individually. Mm -hmm. And so I think by increasing the number of class projects, I'm going to have students more opportunities to actually get to know each other and to work better. For sure. and so, and so I'm going to do that. Then the other class is my senior seminar where students write these research papers. And uh, what they do is they write papers with uh, repeated feedback from their classmates, and then they develop the paper, revise the papers, they go along. And by the end of the semester, there's, there's usually a couple of them that actually get published. And that, that can totally be done online. And uh, I'm gonna try to make, make sure there's more interaction among the students, reading each other's papers and commenting on each other's papers. But I can totally do that online too, so. Right. So I think I may survive. And then in the fall, maybe we'll be back to normal. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to going to have to wrap this up reluctantly. This has been fun. Um, we've been talking with economics professor Gary Smith. Thanks, Gary. This has it's been, been terrific. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Gary. And sure. to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe. And until next time.